Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome back to Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, and we are now starting Chapter 44, The Leland Manuscript, Part 1. The Leland Manuscript is so called because it is said to have been discovered by the celebrated antiquary John Leland. Sometimes it is called the Locke Manuscript in consequence of the notes that are believed by many to have been attached to it by that philosopher. This manuscript, since the middle of the 18th century, attracted the attention and excited the discussion of Masonic students. After having been mentioned with hearty approval by such writers as Preston, Hutchinson, Oliver, and Krauss, it has suffered a decline to some extent of that esteem under the keen examination of later critics. It has by many of these been concluded to be a forgery. Whether this manuscript be an authentic section of history, or, as Brother Mackey held it, to be a pious fraud, intended to strengthen the claim of the order to a great antiquity and to connect it with the mystical schools of the ancients, is today not easy to clearly and completely determine. But as it proposes a theory concerning the origin of the institution, which has long accepted as a legend of the order, it is entitled to a place in the legendary history of Freemasonry. The story of this manuscript and the way in which it was brought to the notice of the craft is a singular one. The Gentleman's Magazine, September 1753, printed the so-called manuscript probably for the first time. The manuscript appeared in print under the title of Certain Questions with Answers to the Same Concerning the Mystery of Masonry, written by the hand of King Henry VI of the name and faithfully copied by me, John Leland, Antiquarius, by the command of His Highness. That is, rewritten by order of King Henry VIII, by whom Leland was employed to search for antiquities in the libraries of cathedrals, abbeys, priories, colleges, and all places where any ancient records were to be found. The article in the Gentleman's Magazine is headed with these words, quote, The following treatise is said to be printed at Frankfurt, Germany, 1748, under the following title, a letter of the famous John Locke relating to Freemasonry, found on the writing table of a deceased brother. End quote. The claim, therefore, is that the document was first published at Frankfurt in 1748, five years before it appeared in England. But this German original has never been produced. The laborious learning of Krauss would certainly have enabled him to discover it had it ever been within his reach. But his failure is not a proof of more than his inability to find the manuscript, and indeed he does not regard this result as fatal to the standing of the facts asserted by the article in the Gentleman's Magazine. But although he accepts the so-called manuscript as authentic, he does not refer to the Frankfurt copy, but admits that so far as he knows, it first made its appearance in Germany in 1780 in J.G.L. Meyer's translation of Preston's illustrations. Kloss, it is true, in his bibliography, gives the title in German with the imprint of Frankfurt 12 pages, but he himself says that the actual existence of such a document is to be wholly doubted.
Besides, it is not unusual with Kloss to give the titles of books that he has never seen, and for whose existence he had no other authority than the casual or offhand remark of some other writer. Thus he gives the titles of the short analysis of the unchanged rites and ceremonies of Freemasons, said to have been printed in 1676, and the short charge, credited to 1698, two books which have never been found. But he applies to them the epithet of doubtful, as he does to the Frankfurt edition of the Leland Manuscript. Before proceeding to an examination of the external and internal evidence of the true character of this document, we will give a sketch of its contents. It is introduced by a letter from John Locke, author of the Essay on the Human Understanding, said to be addressed to the Earl of Pembroke under date of May 6, 1696, in which he states that by the help of Mr. C, he had obtained a copy of the manuscript in the Bodleian Library, which he therewith had sent to the Earl. It is accompanied by many notes made the day before by Locke for the reading of Lady Masham, who had become very fond of masonry. He says, quote, She, now more than ever, wishes herself a man that she might be capable of admission into the fraternity. End quote. Locke says, quote, The manuscript of which this is a copy appears to be about 160 years old. Yet, as your lordship will observe by the title, it is itself a copy of one yet more ancient by about 100 years. For the original, it is said to have been the handwriting of King Henry VI. Where the prince had it is at present an uncertainty, but it seems to me to be an examination, taken perhaps before the king, of some one of the Brotherhood of Masons, among whom he entered himself, and tis said, when he came out of his minority, and thenceforth put a stop to the persecution that had been raised against them. End quote. The examination, for such it purports to be, as Locke supposes, consists of twelve questions and answers. The style and orthography is similar to the language of the 15th century. Freemasonry is described to be the skill of nature, the understanding of the might that is therein and its various operations, besides the skill of numbers, weights, and measures, and the true manner of fashioning all things for the use of man, principally dwellings and buildings of all kinds, and all other things useful to man. Its origin is said to have been with the first men of the East, who were before the man of the West, by which Locke, in his notes, says is meant pre-Adamites, the man of the West being Adam. The Phoenicians, who first came from the East into Phoenicia, are said to have brought it westerly by the way of the Red and Mediterranean Seas. It was brought to England by Pythagoras, who is called in the document Peter Gower, evidently from the French spelling of the name Petagor, he, having traveled in search of knowledge into Egypt, Syria, and every other land where the Phoenicians had planted Freemasonry, having obtained a knowledge of the art in the lodges of Freemasons where he gained admission, on his return to Europe he settled in Magna Gratia, the name given by the ancients to southern Italy, and established a grand lodge at Crotona, one of its principal cities, where he made many Freemasons. Some of these traveled into France and made many other Freemasons, whence in process of time the art passed over into England. Such is the history of the origin and progress of Freemasonry given in the Leland Manuscript. The remainder of the document gives the character and the objects of the institution. Thus it is said, in relation to secrecy, that Freemasons have at all times communicated to mankind such of their secrets as might generally be useful and have kept back only those that might be harmful in evil hands, those that could be of no use unless accompanied by the teachings of the Lodge and those which are employed to bind the brethren more strongly together. 
the arts taught by Freemasons to mankind are said to be agriculture, architecture, astronomy, geometry, arithmetic, music, poetry, chemistry, government, and religion. Freemasons are said to be better teachers than other men, because the first of them received from God the art of finding new arts and of teaching them, whereas the discoveries of other men have been but few and acquired only by chance. This art of the discovery the Freemasons conceal for their own profit. They also conceal the art of working miracles, the art of foretelling future events, the art of changes, which Locke interprets as signifying the ability to alter one metal into another, the transmutation of metals, the method of acquiring the faculty of abrac, the power of becoming good and perfect without the aid of fear and hope, and the universal language. Lastly, it is admitted that the Freemasons do not know more than other men, but only have a better opportunity of knowing it, in which many fail for want of capacity and industry. As to their virtue, it is acknowledged that some are not so good as other men, yet it is believed that for the most part they are better than they would be if they were not Freemasons. And it is claimed that Freemasons greatly love each other because good and true men, knowing each other to be such, always love the more the better they are. Quote, and here endeth the questions and answers. There does not appear to be any great novelty in this document. The theory of the origin of Freemasonry had been advanced by others before its appearance in public, and Freemasonry had been previously defined. But it was eagerly seized as a treasure and was soon accepted as a genuine relic of the early age of English Freemasonry and put into its history, a position that it has not yet lost in the opinion of some. Of the publications on this document, so much as this is known. As we have seen, it appeared in the Gentleman's Magazine, 1753. Kloss records a book as published in 1754, with no place of publication, probably London, having a title of A Masonic Creed with a Curious Letter by Mr. Locke. This, we can hardly doubt, was the Leland Manuscript with a new title. In 1756, it was printed in Entick's edition of the Constitutions, and in Dermot's Ahiman Rezon, in 1763 in the Freemason's Pocket Companion, in 1769 in Wilkinson's Constitutions of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, and in Calcott's Candid Disquisition, in 1772 in Hudsford's Life of Leland, and in Preston's Illustrations of Masonry, in 1775 in Hutchinson's Spirit of Masonry, and in 1784 in Northwick's edition of the Constitutions. In Germany, it first appeared in 1776, says Krauss, in J.G.L. Meyer's translation of Preston, in 1780 in a translation of Hutchinson, published at Berlin, in 1805 in the Magazine für Feiermaurer of Professor Sihas, in 1807 in the collected Masonic works of Fessler, in 1810 by Dr. Krauss in his three oldest documents, and in 1824 by Mossdorf in his edition of Lenning's Encyclopedia. In France, Thorey published a translation of it with some comments of his own in 1815 in the Acta Latimorum. In America, it was, so far as we know, first published in 1783 in Smith's Ahiman Rezon of the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania. It was also published in 1817 by Cole in his Ahiman Rezon of Maryland, and it has been copied into several other works. In none of these republications, with one or two exceptions, is there the slightest doubt of the genuineness of the document. It was on the contrary, almost everywhere accepted as authentic, and as the detail of an actual examination of a Freemason or a company of Freemasons made by King Henry VI of England or some of his ministers in the 15th century. 
Of all who have cited this manuscript, Dr. Carl Christian Frederick Krauss is among the most learned, and the one we should naturally expect most capable of detecting a literary forgery. But he speaks of it in his great work on the oldest documents of the Fraternity of Freemasons as being a remarkable and instructive document, and as among the oldest known to us. In England, he says, it is, so far as it is known to him, accepted as authentic by the learned as well as by the whole body of the craft, without a dissenting voice. He refers to the fact that the Grand Lodge of England formally admitted it into its Book of Constitutions, while the Grand Lodge of Scotland approved the work of Laurie, where its authenticity is supported by new proofs. Mossdorf, whose warm and intimate relations with Krauss influenced perhaps his views on this as they did on other Masonic subjects, has expressed a live favorable opinion of the Leland Manuscript. In his additions to the Encyclopedia of Lenning, he calls it a remarkable document, which notwithstanding a singularity about it, and its impression of the ancient time in which it originated is instructive and the oldest catechism which we have on the origin, the nature, and the design of Freemasonry. The editor of Laurie's History is equally satisfied of the genuine character of this document, to which he confidently refers to as conclusive evidence that Dr. Plot was wrong in saying that Henry VI did not patronize Freemasonry. Dr. Oliver, as might be expected from his peculiar notions in respect to the early events of Freemasonry, was a more, most ardent defender of the manuscript, although he candidly admits there is some degree of mystery about it and doubts have been entertained whether it be not a forgery. Considering its publicity at a time when Freemasonry was beginning to excite a considerable share of public attention, and that the deception, if there was one, would have been publicly exposed by the opponents of the order, he thinks that their silence is a proof that the document is genuine. Quote, being thus universally diffused, he says, had it been a suspected document, its exposure would have been certainly attempted. If a forgery, it would have been unable to be, have endured the test of a critical examination. But no such attempt was made, and the presumption is that the document is authentic. On the other hand, there are writers who have as carefully investigated the subject, but whose studies have led them to the conclusion that the document never had any existence until the middle of the 18th century, and that the effort to place it in the time of Henry VI is, as Mounier calls it, a Masonic fraud. As early as 1787, while the English Freemasons were receiving it as a document of approved truth, the French critics had begun to doubt its genuineness. At a meeting of the Philalethes, a rite of hermetic Freemasonry instituted at Paris in 1775, the Marquis de Chef de Bienne read a paper entitled Masonic Researches for the Use of the Primitive Rite of Narbonne. In this paper, he presented an unfavorable criticism of the Leland Manuscript. In 1801, M. Mounier published an essay on the influence attributed to the philosophers, the Freemasons, and the Illuminati in the French Revolution, in which he pronounces the document to be a forgery and a Masonic fraud. Lessing was the first of the German critics who attacked the genuineness of the document. This he did in his Ernst und Falk, the first edition of which was published in 1778. Others followed, and the German unfavorable criticisms were closed by Findel, the author of Bauhut and author of A History of Freemasonry, first published in 1865 and translated in 1869 by Brother Lyon. He says, quote, There is no reliance, whatever, to be placed on any assertions based on this spurious document. They all crumble to dust. Not even in England does any well-informed Freemason of the present day believe in the genuineness of this bungling composition. 
The first attack upon it in England was made in 1849 by George Sloane in his New Curiosities of Literature. Sloane was not a Freemason. His criticism, vigorous as it seems, seems to have been inspired rather by a feeling of dislike to the institution than by an honest desire for the truth. Brother A.F.A. Woodford is more cautious in the expression of his judgment, but admits that, quote, we must give up the actual claim of the document to be a manuscript of the time of King Henry VI, or to have been written by him or copied by Leland, end quote. Yet he thinks, quote, it not unlikely that we have in it the remains of a lodge catechism conjoined with a hermetic one, end quote. A nameless writer in the Masonic Magazine, London, gave an able though brief review of the arguments for and against the external evidence of authenticity and concluded that the former utterly failed. Amid such conflicting views, an investigation must be conducted with impartiality. The influence of great names, especially among the German writers, has been enlisted on both sides, and the most careful judgment must be exercised in determining which of these sides is right and which is wrong. In the investigation of the genuineness of any document, we must have resort to two kinds of evidence, the external and the internal. The former is usually more clear and precise, as well as more easily handled, because it is on the surface of things and easily understood by the most unpracticed judgment. When there is no doubt about the meaning and there is a proper exercise of skill, internal evidence is freer from doubt and therefore the most conclusive. It is, as a writer on the history of our language, the pure reason of the case speaking to us directly by which we cannot be deceived if we only rightly understand it. Although we must sometimes dispense with external evidence because it may be out of our reach, while the internal evidence is always present, yet the combination of the two will make the conclusion to which we arrive more certain than it could be by the application of either kind alone. If it should be claimed that a particular document was written in a certain century, the mention of it or the use of extracts from it by authors of that time would be the best external evidence of its genuineness. It is thus that the New Testament was strengthened in authority by the quotation of many passages of the Gospels and the Epistles to be found in authentic writings of the early fathers of the Church. This is the external evidence. If the, docu- the language of the document under consideration, the peculiar style, and the ancient words used in it should be those found in other documents known to have been written in the same century, and if the sentiments are those that we should expect from the author are in accord with the age when he lived, this would be internal evidence and entitled to great weight. But this internal evidence is subject to one fatal defect. The style and language of the period and the sentiments of the pretended author and of the age in which he lived may be successfully imitated by a skillful forger, and then the evidence is misleading. So Chatterton palmed upon the world the supposed productions of the monk Rowley and Ireland forged pretended plays of Shakespeare. Each of these made close imitations of the style of the authors whose lost works they claimed to have discovered. When the imitation has not been successful or when there has been no imitation attempted, the use of words unknown at the date claimed for the document in dispute or the reference to events of which the writer must be ignorant because they occurred at a later period, or when the sentiments are not in tune with the age in which they are supposed to have been written, then the internal evidence that is that it is a forgery, or at least a production of a later date, become convincing. By these two classes of evidence, Brother Mackey sought to ascertain the true character of the Leland Manuscript. His argument follows. 
If it can be shown that there is no evidence of the existence of the document before the year 1753, and if it can also be shown that neither the language of the document, the sentiments expressed in it, nor the character credited to the chief actor, King Henry VI, conform with documents of the 15th century, we shall be justified in rejecting the theory as wholly unsound that it belongs to such a period. But in arriving at a fair conclusion, the rule of Ulpion, the Roman expert on the law, must be obeyed, and the testimonies well considered and not merely counted. Not the number of the whole, but the weight of each must control our judgment. Those who defend the genuineness of the Leland manuscript approve of these points. 1. The document was first printed at Frankfurt in Germany, whence it was copied into the Gentleman's Magazine for September 1753. 2. The original manuscript was, by command of Henry VIII, copied by John Leland from an older document of the time of Henry VI. 3. This original manuscript, of which Leland made the copy, was written by King Henry VI. 4. The manuscript of Leland was placed in the Bodleian Library. 5. A copy of this manuscript of Leland was made by a Mr. C., said to mean Collins, and given to John Locke. 6. Locke wrote notes on it in the year 1696, which were published in Frankfurt in 1748 and in England in 1753. Brother Mackey holds that the failure to establish by competent proof any one of these six points will seriously affect the belief in the whole story, for each of them is a link to one continuous chain. He submits the following. 1. Now as to the first point, that the document was first printed at Frankfurt in the year 1748, the Frankfurt copy has never yet been seen, notwithstanding diligent search has been made for it by German writers who are the most capable of discovering it if it had ever existed. The negative evidence is strong that the Frankfurt copy may be justly considered as a mere myth. It follows that the article in the Gentleman's Magazine is an original document, and we have a right to suppose that it was written at the time for some purpose, to be hereafter considered, for, as the author of it has given a false reference, we may conclude that if he had copied it at all, he would have furnished us with the true one. Kloss, it is true, has admitted the title into his catalog, but he has borrowed his description of it from the article in the Gentleman's Magazine, and speaks of this Frankfurt copy as being very doubtful. He evidently had never seen it, though he was a tireless searcher after Masonic books. Krauss's account of it is that it was first found worthy of Locke's notice in England, that thence it passed over into Germany. How, he does not know, appeared in Frankfurt, and then returned to England, where it was printed in 1753. But all this is mere hearsay, and taken by Krauss from the statement in the Gentleman's Magazine. He makes no reference to the Frankfurt copy in his copious notes in the Kunstrukenden, and like Kloss, had no personal knowledge of any such publication. In short, there is no positive evidence at all that any such document was printed at Frankfurt on the Main, but abundant negative evidence that it was not. Thus, Brother Mackey says the first point must be abandoned. So we'll pick up next week with Mackey's argument against those six points with point number two. So thanks for listening, and we'll pick it up again next week with the second half of the Leland Manuscript. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.